Welcome to the Addison Gallery of American Art. I'm Tamara Vishai, host of the art history podcast, The Lonely Palette. And throughout this three episode series, your guide to the Addison, as we celebrate its 90th anniversary by looking at some of the most important and provocative objects in the museum's collection. Join me on a thematic stroll through the galleries as we poke and probe both what these objects mean to art history and to each other. Today, exploring the urban sublime. Winslow Homer's Eight Bells from 1886 is a truly glorious painting. It's a crown jewel in the Addison's collection, and for good reason. It's a dynamic, detailed masterpiece brimming with man, sky, and sea, and considered truly a paradigm of its genre. But what exactly is its genre? Is it a landscape? with so much of the canvas taken up by the spectrum of clouds and churning ocean waves? Is it a battle scene, with the sailors in the foreground and their glistening wet hats feeling the first rays of sun after a storm that they've resolutely survived? The tempestuousness of nature is painted with all the tenderness and dimensions of a portrait. The natural sunlight then acts as the painting's light source, breaking through the clouds and both illuminating and giving volume to the scene's natural and man-made details. The white caps of the waves, the men's instruments, their weathered oilskins, the glints of moisture on the boat's hull. So what kind of genre is this? More than anything, it feels like a painting about the equilibrium of all of its competing parts. You don't often see this kind of detente between human beings and the natural world, between little us and big it. It's a rare and ephemeral thing to witness a moment where man and nature feel so calmly and evenly matched. Because really, is there any relationship in art that is more fraught and more metaphorically loaded than the one between human beings and their environment? I mean, you wouldn't think so at first. The history of art, after all, is a soapy paradise, overflowing with jilted Rococo lovers, with biblical Renaissance anguish, with the classical heartbreak of gods and goddesses. Landscape painting, on its surface, lacks the same kind of, shall we say, popcorn drama. But go a little deeper. Consider the specificity and the immersive quality of a place. The representation of environments in art history almost always has a deeper meaning beyond capturing the beauty of a poppy field or a haystack or a sunset. So often the landscape comments on what exists, what no longer exists, what has been displaced, what once was. Nature is often another full-bodied character in a painting's drama, engaging with, taunting, or resisting the human figure. It's a foil, it's a foe, it's a beast to be tamed. It's a painful lesson in humility. Landscapes can capture the calm before the storm, the pregnant pause, the battle, the aftermath, the sublime and think specifically about the most prominent movements of landscape paintings. 
Romantic painters pitted humans against nature, where the storms and roiling waves about to sink the protagonist often served as a metaphor for his own inner demons, for the part of our own nature that eludes our rational control. The Hudson River School artists found quiet sovereignty over nature in the human scale, where even distant storms and brambles could be cultivated and softened. I mean, just think about what story they were telling themselves. Early 20th century European expressionists romanticized a utopian and often underdressed version of non-Western Shangri-La-like cultures as a means of channeling their anxiety about modernity and industrialization. And of course, this whole time, we viewers are still just looking at depictions of sky, land, and sea. They can be beautiful or threatening or eerily empty or even a little boring. So you have to go deeper. You have to keep in mind that when it comes to a painting about the natural world, much like that roiling ocean itself, there's an entire universe teeming beneath the surface. And it's a particularly late 19th and early 20th century concern and a particularly American concern, to bring these metaphorical ideas about the natural world into the built environment, into the modern city. America is, of course, an enormous place, equal parts rural and urban, coexisting, such as they do, side by side. And so, it's no surprise that American artists have a lot of experience navigating, identifying, and reconciling the relationship between the rural and the urban, and how human beings interact with both. And in this episode, we're going to join them. We're calling it The Urban Sublime, an exploration of the American city as seen through the eyes of all the romance, potency, and metaphor that art history has traditionally focused on landscape. We'll be looking at a handful of works by Edward Hopper, Robert Frank, Bernice Abbott, Charles Sheeler, and Martin Wong, artists who occupy different time periods and perspectives and who work in a variety of media, but all of whom are looking at the city itself through this lens, where fresh concrete has as much potential as a fresh snowfall where skyscraper windows appear as overwhelming as the boundless sky, and where the human scale is itself recalibrated as the city that we built suddenly outmatches us, and what that means for the story of modernity that we tell ourselves. So let's pull out the big guns and start with Edward Hopper. His painting, Manhattan Bridge Loop, from 1928, taps into many of his most familiar tropes. A city presented in high contrast, with schematic blocks of light and deep shadows, and the lone figure turned away from us. A figure who is given less, or at least little more, attention than the detailed lamppost in the foreground. Hopper's paintings are ostensibly about the modern American city but are intrinsically and intimately about stillness and alienation, which is perhaps most authentically about experiencing the modern American city, as ironic as that seems given how fast-paced and densely populated it is. 
And in this way, Hopper's paintings are less metaphorical than a deep emotional response to modernity, the move from rural to urban America, especially as he experienced it in his own life. Guided by his teacher, Robert Henry's philosophy that, quote, it isn't the subject matter that counts, but how you feel about it. Hopper always prized his own deeply felt interior perspective as his lens. Quote, my aim in painting, he wrote in a letter to the Addison Gallery, quote, is always using nature as the medium to try to project upon the canvas my most intimate reaction to the subject, end quote. And in the same way that emotion can both sharpen and blur our perspectives in equal measure, Hopper's paintings tend to contain deep juxtapositions between his work as a graphic illustrator and his poetic artistic interpretations, between specificity and generality, between the sharpness of the shadows cast from the fire escapes and the complete anonymity of the figure. We see exactly this juxtaposition in his most famous painting, Nighthawks, from 1942, where we can see through the diner window exactly how much coffee is left in each urn, and yet are given no indication of how any of the painting's protagonists relate to one another. A Hopper painting, especially his clearly demarcated cityscapes, tell us the time of day based on the specific way that the light hits, tells us the precise location based on the landmarks. The only thing they don't tell us is who and why. And so we're left to fill that in ourselves, which if you've ever moved to a big city alone, you can relate to viscerally. Often, the bigger the city, the lonelier, quieter, and more interior the experience. Unless, of course, you've happened to be captured at the fever pitch of your given moment by the photographer Robert Frank. At first, his photograph, Parade, Hoboken, New Jersey, from 1955, one of the seminal images from his iconic series, The Americans, appears to capture the same sense of isolation and alienation in the American city that Hopper does. Two figures watch a parade from their separate windows, their faces obfuscated and anonymous. And yet, where Hopper's work embodies stillness, even this frozen moment of Frank's is rife with energy, not the least of which comes from the flapping American flag that bisects the top of the image. And this sense of crackling energy, both physical and metaphorical, connects the figures, even in their isolation from one another. The Americans was the result of Frank, a Swiss-born émigré and documentary photographer, receiving a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1955 to photograph America through the eyes of an outsider, to turn a more objective eye onto an antsy, passionate post-war culture that was mired in race and class consciousness, and yet was attempting to redefine the American dream, one community and one individual at a time. Frank shot over 27,000 images on his journeys crisscrossing the country to arrive at the final set of 83 black and white photographs, the entirety of which is owned by the Addison which are shot in a deliberately loose, grainy style that captured the casual characters, places, pageantry, specificity, and humanity 
of an America barely able to sit still and the deeper tensions rippling beneath the surface. And you can almost feel this rippling in that flag. And think about the significance of that flag, of the multiplicity of its interpretations. Like Jasper Johns, whom we looked at in episode one, Frank is well aware of both the striking graphic visuals and the deeper meaning of the American flag, both of which shapeshift depending on the viewer. And this flag, this man-made symbol too, is so dependent on the fundamental energy of the natural environment, the rippling air itself, to keep it as alive, dynamic, and untamed as the polity that it flies over. And this brings us to Bernice Abbott, also a photographer, also a documentarian, and also, like Hopper, a transplant to New York City in the highly industrialized days of the first decades of the 20th century, when the landscape was being built up at a breathless pace. The work of a documentary photographer like her, who, in her case, was also trained extensively as an artist and a sculptor, had particular and marketable cultural resonance following the Great Depression. This blend of a journalistic and an artistic eye was invaluable, and she was given federal funding in the form of a WPA grant, that is, a Works Progress Administration grant, which, as part of the New Deal, funded public works, including photojournalism. There were several such New Deal entities that did this. Another, the Farm Security Administration, stated the aim of, quote, telling the story of America to Americans, and most famously funded a photojournalism project that included the tightly shot portraits of rural farmers, like Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother or Walker Evans' portrait of Allie Mae Burroughs, both now iconic portraits, and both of which are in the Addison's collection. These portraits intended to humanize a rarely seen socioeconomic class in the more urban parts of the country. But in Abbott's case, her photos of New York introduced the city itself to a rarely seen, or at least rarely documented, socioeconomic class. Similar to the Ashgan School of Painting, her photography focused particularly on the role that architecture and infrastructure played in both creating and maintaining the inequality between the classes. Her photograph, Canyon, 46th Street and Lexington Avenue, looking west from 1936, at first blush, and as we've seen, it's always at first blush in the case of the urban sublime, is a beautifully composed upward glance at the rising skyscrapers with clearly focused lines, patterned windows, and a high contrast monochrome that both plays with the light and the building materials. It evokes the natural world. It feels like looking up from the bottom of a canyon, both in how oppressive and majestic it is. But as always, there is a deeper narrative beyond the first blush. Abbott, who spent several years in France studying and championing the photographer Eugène Atje's documentation of a disappearing Paris, found the literal rise of the buildings as a clear indication of a disappearing New York, overwhelming and dwarfing the human scale. 
This photograph in particular aimed to critique the Port Authority's proposal to increase the concentration of business activity through quote-unquote improvements to transportation. She turned her camera on the facades of Grand Central Station at precisely the moment it appears the most overbearing, the most dehumanized. In Abbott's hands, and ultimately in the series that she released in 1939 titled Changing New York, it's clear that when it came to humans versus the built environment, much like a small romantic vessel and the monstrous sea, the two sides were hopelessly unmatched. Of course, one artist's overbearing is another artist's thrill. In exploring the art of Charles Scheeler, who worked as both a photographer and a painter, and the two mediums clearly influenced one another, you get the sense that everything about a skyscraper that puts Bernice Abbott off actually turns Charles Scheeler on. It can be exciting to look upwards at something too high, too beyond our natural scale, like a subversive form of acrophobia. And this is especially true when, again, there are layers beneath the surface that speak to something equally exciting about the American city. Its speed, its boldness, its dizzying heights. In Scheeler's painting Ballardville from 1946, named for the industrial area of Andover, Massachusetts that he visited when he was an artist in residence at the Addison, he depicts an abandoned mill as strong, chromatically unmodulated, a triumphant, quote, confluence of soaring geometries, in the words of curator Carol Troyan, with a towering smokestack that rises up like a church spire. Scheeler's style became known as precisionism, a movement that represented the urban landscape in simplified, sharp-edged shapes, emphasizing a kind of impersonal flatness that glorifies the form. And it's what we see here, any of this mill's dilapidated details, which definitely existed, are smoothed out in favor of the same schematic boldness we see in Hopper's unbroken blocks of light. Yet the way that Hopper and Abbott capture a sense of elegiac nostalgia for what industry has displaced, Schiller, like Frank, harnesses its energy and renders its presence graphic and celebratory as the backdrop of a superhero comic, even when it's a building that progress has already left behind. So we've looked at the creation of the city through the lens of loneliness, of energy, of oppression, and of nostalgia. But let's say we've accepted the existence of the city itself. What then does it allow for? What does it create? What life and identity does New York City, for example, sustain and cultivate? And this brings us to our final artist, Martin Wong. Wong, a Chinese-American painter born in 1946 and died of AIDS-related complications in 1999, tends to be spoken of in the same breath as Keith Haring, David Wanarovich, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, and other fellow openly gay artists who thrived in the late 70s and 80s, whose work overtly references both the thrill and complexity of queerness and the devastation of the AIDS crisis that tragically claimed them all when they were each heartbreakingly young. 
But what delineates Wong in particular, and for our purposes, was his love affair with New York City's Lower East Side and its graffiti, its crumbling tenements, and its powerful, diverse sense of community, all of which he depicts with, quote, poetic realism, in the words of the critic Roberta Smith. In this painting, Portrait of Miguel Pinheiro, from 1982, Wong taps into all of it. His dear friend and sometimes partner, the Puerto Rican avant-garde writer and poet Pinheiro, who died of AIDS in 1988, set against the now familiar backdrop of skyscrapers that rise upwards, but here feel like home, the appropriate set dressing for the only world that affords them their identities and their liberation. The uniform windows of the buildings are referenced as the painting continues upwards, unfurling like a Chinese scroll, into the sign language at the top that Wong paints to depict a poem by Pinheiro. The city frames and even embraces the warmth and poignancy of this relationship, where Hopper used the city's boundless expanse to emphasize our loneliness. Wong reigns it in as though to emphasize our intimacy. This juxtaposition, this irreconcilable reality, this is the urban sublime, where the city itself is as impossibly large as the ocean is deep, as unknowable as Jupiter's moons, and yet contains every human scale imaginable. And it's why our relationship with our environment, natural and man-made, is so powerful, so tempestuous, and so unevenly matched depending on the perspective, depending on the day. We're never gonna take it all in. Eight bells is a rarity. Only in an artwork can we find an equilibrium like that. So I propose we embrace the drama. We take on the roiling sea and see what we find. Win or lose, we know we're always going to find something sublime just beneath the surface. A great big thank you to the Addison staff, present and past. You can find these episodes as they're being released, beginning in May 2021 on the Lonely Palette feed and at the Addison Gallery of American Arts website, where you can also see all of the images and find more information about Learning to Look, the Addison at 90, which runs through fall 2021. You can also listen to The Lonely Palette at www.thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.